I invite you to turn with me again in your copy of God's Word, this time to our New Testament. Our scripture reading uh, this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 down to 48. We are uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel. We are, Lord willing, in the opening months of a lengthy sermon series preached through the entire book. Uh, These last two weeks and this Sunday morning, we're in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus addresses the law. Uh, The law was that portion of God's word that told God's people what to do. And Jesus comes and he addresses the law as it has been taught by the teachers of the day. And we find out that Jesus is taking six different topics And with each topic, he is addressing how the Pharisees and teachers of the day taught that topic from God's law. Then he's showing us how they kind of got it wrong and how to rightly understand the law of God. And in every case, it's a lot harder to keep than we originally thought. It lifts the standard of God's righteousness and holiness, quite frankly, out of reach. But Jesus still is leading us to aim to obey his law in following him, while also knowing that we need him ultimately as the only one who can keep it. This morning we come to our final two topics, the topic of retaliation or vengeance and the topic of loving our neighbor, which the teachers described as loving our enemies which Jesus described, rather, as loving our enemies. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me again in prayer? Our Lord, as we come to your word, as we come to your law, as we come to hear the words of your great prophet and teacher, your son himself, Jesus, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, soften our hearts to hear uh, your word today. Soften our hearts to see the humility of our Savior, that we would walk that same path. Soften our hearts to see the graciousness and even the submission of our Lord, that we too would walk the same paths. Give us that same faith and trust in you, the righteous God, 
that whatever you ordain is right, that we would rest at peace in following your word, even when all is wrong around us. Speak to us, O God, in these few minutes, for your children are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So who is it in your life that really knows how to push your buttons? I know if my sister were here, she would point straight at me this morning. She knew growing up that I knew exactly how to push all of her buttons. Uh, If you grew up with siblings, you're probably thinking of how your older brother or your younger sister knew how to push, and still does, know how to push all your buttons. Maybe it's a neighbor Maybe it's somebody at church that knows how to push your buttons. Maybe it's your spouse who knows how to get under your skin and push your buttons. What does it mean when we say that word? It's, it's a, that phrase, it's a, it's, a, it's a great little phrase, isn't it? It means when somebody provokes us, right? when somebody irks us, when somebody annoys us. Maybe it's when somebody wrongs us, when somebody offends us, when somebody hurts us. What happens when somebody pushes your buttons is you are provoked to respond in a certain way, right? To respond in probably frustration, respond in anger. You have some response when that one person just irks you and keeps pushing your buttons. What we have in our Bible passage this morning is showing us how we should respond Usually how we don't respond, but how we should respond when others are pushing our buttons. But it's more than just living in a world where other people annoy us. It's more than that, isn't it? It's living in a world of pain and suffering and sin when people wrong us. How do we respond when we are wronged by others? When it's more than just an annoying little button that they're pushing This morning, I want us to take a look at how Jesus responds when he is wronged, that he might show us how we are to respond when we are wronged. And I hope you see in this that we're actually the ones in our sin who wrong Jesus, our Savior. So how he responds to us is not merely an example, it is life itself. To put it another way around, when wronged, we look to our Lord's response to guide ours. When we are wronged, we learn to look to the response of Jesus when he was wronged in order to guide our own. And I have two very basic points for you this morning, and they're directly points of application. So you're getting your application on the front end this morning. Number one, when you are wronged, you lay down your rights. You lay down your rights. And number two, you lift up your prayers. Lay down your rights, lift up your prayers. We're going to see that in these final two topics of the law that Jesus addresses this this morning. We've covered topics one and two, two weeks ago, three and four last week. We're doing five and six together uh, this morning. So in verses 38 to 42... We see this application, when wronged, lay down your rights. How does Jesus teach that? Well, look with me at the words. Verse 38, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have probably heard that phrase before. 
You may have heard it in the word. You may have heard it in some other place, some other walk of life. It is a legal code speaking that when somebody does something wrong against somebody else, the proper form of retaliation is an equal penalty to what they have taken away. So if somebody takes an eye from you, a just response would be to take their eye. Sort of gruesome, right? Uh, A tooth for a tooth. If somebody robs you of X number of dollars, it is an appropriate uh, restitution and penalty to pay that same number of dollars. It is a, uh, a principle of just retribution. You may, have, you may know the Latin phrase, lex talionis, right? The, the proper exchange of like for like in penalty and response. It actually appears in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 24. We see it appear in Genesis chapter 9. You'll remember Genesis 9 when Noah and his family is getting off the ark and God is telling them to protect life. That life is guaranteed because the one who takes life, their life should be taken from them. It is a legal code intended to guide the justice, the just systems of the people of God. Another reason for it came to be shown in the fallen nature of humans that when we are sinned against, we have this innate sense of personal revenge, right? We want to go after the person who has hurt us. This law actually protects guilty people from personal revenge that goes above and beyond what the law itself requires. I mean, you can sort of imagine, right, somebody being wronged, but they're not satisfied with the penalty that the justice system imposes, and they want to take matters into their own hands. This law protects the guilty, amazingly, from vindictiveness from the one offended. That's actually why Jesus is addressing it here. Uh, Because in his day, there were those who twisted God's law so that they could go after the people who had hurt them, the people who had offended them. You remember, Jesus begins every one of these contrasts by saying, you have heard that it was said. When he does that, it means he's not quoting exactly the Old Testament law. He's quoting how that Old Testament law has been, back to our key word from a couple weeks ago, relaxed. How it has been lowered. How it has been made sort of easier to keep. And so Jesus is protecting justice from those who are over-eager to get revenge against those who have hurt them. So when he goes on to say, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. We can see this in contrast from one another, right? Do not resist is do not get revenge. Or it's also translated as do not fight back against or do not oppose in return. So Jesus is condemning a spirit of vengeance, a spirit of revenge, a spirit that none of us has to learn. We all come by it naturally, don't we? I don't have to teach my children as they're growing up what revenge is. They get it, right? You get it, right? You were there before anybody ever gave you a word for it. Jesus is speaking against a spirit of vengeance. Now, 
The immediate context here seems to be a legal context. I'm going to go through the examples in a moment. But it seems to be saying don't resist sort of legally in the court of law. Don't go as far as you possibly can to get revenge through the court system. So what he's putting before his people is a choice. The choice is when you are wronged, you have one of two options. You can fight back tooth and nail or... You can patiently yield and submit even to the wrong that has been done to you. The principle that Jesus is teaching is lay down your rights. Now, I don't believe he's teaching a narrow legal principle. I think Jesus is actually expanding this to teach the attitude of the heart of his people. Because this is, this is the heart of our Lord towards those who have wronged him. And how does he teach us? He teaches us to have an attitude of how we respond to personal insults, personal slights, personal offenses. Do we seek to get even? Do we seek to take justice in our own hands? Do we seek to make the other person hurt just as much as I have been hurt? Or are we eager to yield and submit in the sovereign plan of God for our lives and not enact personal revenge. Now, remember our main idea here this morning is when we are wronged, we look to Jesus to see how we respond. So what did Jesus do? How does Jesus respond when wronged? Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. Peter writes this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter tells us this is our example. That when he is reviled, he does not revile in return. Right? When he is hurt, when he is wronged, when he is offended, he does not resist, in his own words, verse 39, he does not resist the one who is evil. We look to Jesus as the example of how we respond when wronged. Now, there's a couple ways this verse has been taken wrongly. So I want to tell you just a couple things Jesus is not teaching here. Number one, he is not teaching that this is to be applied to the civil government, as if the the civil government, the legal system of whatever country and whatever time, is not supposed to protect the lives of its own people. No, clearly this works in a world in which God executes judgment and justice, not through individuals taking revenge, but through a just civil government system of courts, legal system, right? So this is not saying that the civil government is not to punish evil. That's actually the very purpose of the civil government in the first place. Number two, Jesus is not telling us that someone else has to lay down their rights for you. <laughs> you can see how this can be taken out of context and say, you know, you, the pastor really said on Sunday, you're supposed to lay down your rights so I can do whatever I want. And we used to have a, a neighbor who would come to our house to play back when we lived in Charlotte. And she knew that at her house, Mom's rule was the guests got whatever they wanted. And so when she came to our house and she was the guest, well, she was really good at quoting that rule all the time, right? 
So she always got what she wanted when she was at our house. She didn't get invited back very often. You can imagine why. We don't get to demand that other people lay down their rights. We can wish they, they would. I have been in many circumstances where I wish a sister or brother in Christ would just lay down their rights. But I can't enforce that. I can't demand that. And then a final thing Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that we ignore the trampling of rights in the world around us. He is not saying that if you have been hit, as we're going to see in a moment, you just need to submit to it and just get hit some more. He is not saying that vulnerable people must submit to those who hurt and punish and abuse them, right? You can see how these verses can be taken out of context. He is not saying that citizens in a nation whose government is causing them to sin must humbly submit and commit those sinful behaviors. Right? These, we need to take Jesus' teaching here as a principle for individual responses to slights, wrongs, offenses, and sins against us. Paul phrases it uh, this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, he says, uh, he, the context is brothers going to file lawsuits against other brothers in Christ. And he says in verse 6, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And here's the key phrase. Why not rather suffer wrong? He's, he's asking us in the church. Why would you not just rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, he says. With that in mind, look at Jesus' examples. He gives us four examples. I don't think these are literal, legal case law. There's some hyperbole here, right? If we just gave our clothes to whoever asked for them, well, he doesn't want us to go around without clothes, right? He doesn't want us to always be going literally carrying things the extra mile. So there's some hyperbole here. I think we need to treat these examples sort of like a proverb as they, they teach us uh, wisdom and principles that aim towards the attitudes of our hearts. So just look at each of them real, real quick. Verse 39, turn the other cheek. Right? You've heard this all the time. Uh, but I, but, excuse me, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The right cheek is, is clear here. The slapping hand, most people are right-handed, is the right hand. So if you slap someone on the right cheek with your right hand, it's a backhanded slap. Right? That's, that, not only is that hurt, but even more than hurt, that's insult. That's an insult, right? And so if somebody insults you, do not resist or, or fight back. Allow yourself to be insulted again. The second one, give the coat off your back. But you see the context of verse 40 is a legal context. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. This is a relinquishing of our rights. Why not rather be defrauded? Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Who's forcing people to go anywhere? Well, this is the, the, the military of the day. And they could force people to carry a load for them a mile or a thousand steps, about a mile, give or take. Uh, and Jesus is saying, if they force you to do a thousand, do another thousand it's a response in a sense to government conscription and then the final verse 
Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think these are sort of two sides to the same coin here. This isn't necessarily a response to being wronged, but it is a response of uh, somebody asking you to give up something that's rightfully yours, right? Your right uh, towards your own private property, towards your own money, but to lend uh, without expecting anything in return. So I don't think we need to narrow these down and find very particular situations in our week in which we have four specific applications to these four examples. Rather, Jesus is addressing our heart. He's sort of saying, is your heart ready if you face each of these this week? What's the state of your heart before the Lord? Are you, are you willing to overlook an offense against you? Are you willing to submit to injury to your person, to your property? Are you ready to forgive? Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to bear mistreatment without seeking out revenge? This is a a common theme of the work of God's spirit among his people. Because this is who Jesus is. This is how Jesus acts. He is the one who lays down his rights. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you see this This isn't just a good example to follow? This is a life lived out of faith. Jesus did not respond to the reviling against him because he, quote, entrusted himself to the Lord. Now we're told here, we don't seek our own revenge because we are trusting the justice of God. If God was not all powerful and if God was not just Man, these would be hopeless verses, right? (laughs) But because he's all-powerful and because he is all-just, we who are not all-powerful and not all-just have no business taking matters into our own hands. What better place for those who offend us to be than in the hand of God? It is an act of faith to respond to slights or offenses or wrongs against us by continuing to trust in the justice of God. And in fact, the fruit of it is it frees us. God's justice frees us. That we are now free to respond, not in revenge, but in love. In generosity of spirit and of action, because this is what Jesus has done for us. Before we move on to the next point, just a simple question for you this morning. What keeps you from laying down your rights? What keeps you from this? Is it selfishness? You just, you really like that coat. (laughs) You can take another coat, but not that one. That's my favorite coat. Is it pride? Laying down your, your rights can be a humiliating thing, can't it? Is it fear? Fear that God really doesn't 
have the future in his hands, that God really isn't just. And so we're afraid to lay down our own rights. Faith in the power and the control and the righteousness and the justice of God lives out as a people are eager and ready to suffer, to bear mistreatment and respond in love and not revenge. The problem is, if we can't respond with revenge, then what can we do? (laughs) We have to do something, right? We have to respond somehow and in some way. And Jesus, in the next section, gives us our response. And it is our second point. Lift up your prayers. Don't get revenge. Pray. Verses 43 to 48 show us our sixth and final contrast between the teaching that comes from the Pharisees and from Jesus, uh, the great teacher and prophet himself. Look with me at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Pause. Can you find a verse in the Old Testament that says this? You cannot. You can find a verse in the Old Testament that says the first part. You cannot find the verse that says the second part, to hate your enemies. Remember we talked earlier, the the Pharisees wanted to relax the law to make it easier. But love your neighbor is hard if you don't like your neighbor. And so if you could take your neighbor and put him in a bucket labeled enemies, then maybe you only have to love the people in the neighbor bucket and not the people in the enemy bucket. That's a whole lot easier law for you to follow, right? I mean, who's the hardest person in this room right now this morning for you to love? If you could just label that person your enemy... And you don't have to love them, man, this law becomes a whole lot easier to keep, right? But Jesus says, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is not against the teaching of the Old Testament. It is regularly taught in God's law in the Old Testament that we are to love all of our neighbors, those who are friends and those who are enemies. Now, how in the world do you love your enemy? If we define love as it's defined in the world today as a feeling based upon the the loveliness of the person that we are called to love, it's impossible to love our enemies, right? If we are waiting until the emotions of our heart are so stirred by the beauty and the, the courage of our enemy that we could finally feel love for them, that's never gonna happen. But the Bible's definition of love is not what is in the object itself. It's in the subject, the one doing the loving. God lo- we love because God first loved us. So to love our enemies is not to wait around until I sort of feel emotional towards my enemy. It is a commitment of the heart to act in love towards our enemies. And what is the loving action that Jesus instructs us to take regarding our enemies? Pray for them. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I hope you have a prayer list, right? Your prayer list is probably the people that you love the most, right? Maybe it's your parents or your kids or your spouse or your siblings, right? Or your family. Hopefully your church is on it. Hopefully your neighbors and your community and on and on is on your prayer list. I wonder how many of you have your arch enemy on your prayer list. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? To think of that 
person occupying space on my prayer list to pray for. Now, what are we supposed to pray for our enemies? I want to make this very clear. The enemies are described here as those who persecute you. So this is not just somebody you don't like. You don't get just, just to define your enemies as people you don't like. And I, I believe this is not enemies like a foreign nation against our nation. I believe this is, these are spiritual enemies. These are people who arrange themselves against God and his gospel and his people. They're not national enemies per se. They are spiritual enemies. So let me give you three things to pray for your enemies. Number one is a curse. Curse. The Psalms have a number of Psalms that are labeled imprecatory Psalms. You know them when you read them because you don't know what to do with them in your quiet time. They are the ones that are violent towards the enemies of God. They are the ones who quite honestly, C.S. Lewis thought shouldn't even be in the Psalter in the first place because they're so full of vengeance. They are psalms that teach us of the justice of God and that the just God will bring the full measure of his righteous wrath down upon his enemies. And we might not rejoice to pray that prayer, but God gives us the space and the encouragement in these psalms to righteously pray Curses on his enemies. That's number one way we pray for our enemy. That's not the only way. Number two, a second C, is we pray that God would curb the plans of our enemies. That God would lessen their evil. That on the way to do that evil thing, they would run into traffic. (laughs) Right On the way to pay that guy for doing that bad thing, they would find there's not enough money in their account. That their tanks would get stuck in the mud. Right, That God would thwart the plans of our enemies that what they so desire to bring to bear, that would hurt the people of God, would not come to pass. That God would muzzle them, leash them, he would curb their evil. But then thirdly, and I think most importantly, Our final C that we pray for our enemies is we pray God would convert them. We pray that God would convert his enemies. And when we pray that prayer, we're actually praying the first curse, the first prayer, would not be poured out on them, we'd be poured out on Jesus. We are praying that God's enemies that so deserve every righteous drop of his wrath, that all of that, would be poured out upon the head of Jesus. And that our enemies, by the grace and mercy of of our Savior, would be counted white as snow. That they would be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. How in the world can we pray this? We look to Jesus. And how did Jesus pray for his enemies? As He was nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Our Lord, praying for the souls of his very enemies, leads us and shows us and teaches us that we pray for our own enemies. 
that God would curse them, he would curb them, and ultimately he would convert them. Why do we do this? Why would we waste precious space on our prayer lists to pray for our enemies? I don't pray for all the people that I wish I was praying for. Why would I waste time putting some enemies on that list? Jesus gives us two reasons. We'll go through them quickly. Verse 47, 45, excuse me. The reason we pray for our enemies is to be like God. Okay? We pray for our enemies to be in order that we would be like God. Look what he says in verse 45. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. All right. God undiscriminatingly loves everyone. That sounds kind of crazy, right? That sounds maybe a little bit like the pastor's gone wacky, but hear me out, right? This verse tells us that God loves everyone with a certain type of love equally, right? When we got up this morning and it was freezing cold, but by God's grace, the sun is shining. That is not because you are a Christian or not a Christian, right? That beautiful sunrise that warms us up on the way to church this morning also shines on our neighbor that would never darken the door of church, right? When we plant our seeds in the garden in a couple months, God will send rain, right, on our garden and on our neighbor's garden and on the the garden of his enemies, right? Because God spreads his grace across the whole world. It's part of his promise after the judgment with Noah that he would spare the world of another flood until the day of his final judgment. We call this God's common grace. It is his grace shared and spread in a common way with both his elect, his chosen, and his enemies. Now, this is not to be confused with God's saving grace, right? Or God's electing grace. Grace by which he shows love, especially for his own people and drawing us to himself. So the application for us is that we love like the son of God that shines out on everyone, even the ones who are cursing him and hating him. That our love is spread equally, in a sense, all around. Loving like this not only makes us like God, but it's our second reason we pray for our enemies. It makes us unlike the world. Verses 46 and 47. Jesus gives two final illustrations of the Pharisees, uh, I'm sorry, of the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Now, Jesus has no problem with these guys. The Pharisees do. And so when Jesus uses them as an example, he's sort of trying to to shame the Pharisees and the people they despise the most. Look how they are acting. And he asks these two sort of obvious questions. Who loves those who love them? Well, we all do, right? Who greets those who greet them? We all do. Pharisee, scribe, tax collector, Gentile, Christian, unbeliever. We all respond when somebody loves us by loving them back. One author has said to respond to love with love is human. To respond to hate with love is Christian. And so Jesus asked them this piercing question. 
Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? What more are you doing than others? You see, the people of God, we don't take our cues from the world, do we? We don't look at the world around us and say, well, how do they love and who do they love? I should be like them. No, we take our cues from the Lord. What more are you doing than others? This idea was driven home to me a few years ago. I heard a, a, an account of uh, some students at Covenant College. Many of you are familiar with Covenant College. It's the college of our denomination in the mountain over Chattanooga. Uh, they had brought in a speaker, a Christian speaker, to speak on a topic that was pretty controversial. Right? I think it was uh, something about the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. I think it was something like that. But unbelieving people in Chattanooga did not like this idea, and they came to protest the speaker. Right? They came to the gates, and they had their signs, and their cheering, and their rally, and they were protesting the teaching of the, the Christian campus. Now, those students faced a choice, right? They could write their own signs. They could get their own bullhorns. They could come down to the end of their property line, and they could go tit for tat and, and yell and jeer back and forth, but that's not what they did. These 18 and 19-year-old Christians, they took their boxed lunch that they provided for their conference, and they brought it down to the protesters. And they brought them bottles of water, right, to make sure that they were okay, that they were fed that day. They were salt and light in loving and praying for their enemies. You see, the grace of our Lord makes us different. He tends to make his people different. The final verse is encouraging and terrifying. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It actually reminds us of the very beginning of this section in chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, the, the scribes excuse me, and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. When Jesus restores the law of God, it humbles us, doesn't it? I mean, we should read all six of these different topics and think, have I really exceeded this? Have, have I come to live this? Does this describe not only my actions, but my inner thoughts and feelings and prayer life? Because the standard Jesus gives is not external works, it is internal perfection and we should read every one of these and realize how woefully short we have fallen and if God's standard is perfection I have no hope but as they humble us they humble us all the way to the foot of the cross that the God who demands perfection supplies that very perfection in the person of his son that the perfect Jesus is the only one who can keep every one of these restored laws. And then we come to him not because we've been obedient. We come to him out of our disobedience and out of our guilt. And we come in repentance, pleading for his mercy. Every one of you, whether you acknowledge it or not, has failed to live up to the law of God. And God mounts up the righteousness of his law that you would see it this morning. 
That you would see your, not only imperfection, but you would see your guilt and your unholiness. And you would hear the call of our Savior that says, he is perfect for you. He is perfect on your behalf. He doesn't call you this morning to be perfect. He calls you this morning to come to him in repentance and faith. To acknowledge how you have broken all six of these. How you have not even come close to keeping any of them. That you would plead for his grace and his mercy that he loves to supply to his own. And as restored hearts, as we leave this section of God's law, we leave seeing that as Jesus has restored the law, we delight to keep it, don't we? I mean, we, it will be the delight of our hearts to live marked by these 11 verses, wouldn't it? I mean, I would rejoice if this accurately described what the Holy Spirit was working in my own heart and the heart of my church. When we are wronged, we look to the Lord's response to, guard our, to guide ours, don't we? So let's take one last look as we close. This is what Paul tells us again in Romans 5. He writes, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies. It's not a, it's not a mental exercise. For Jesus to say, just imagine loving your enemies. He doesn't ask us to do something he hasn't already done. That every one of us are either his enemies right now or were once his enemies. And God sent his son to die on the cross. Not as our example, but as our redemption. That we as enemies would now be called friends. And now would be called sons of our father who is in heaven. The more you see how God loves you, his enemies, the more you'll be able to love your own enemies to the praise of his grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, this final section of your law pierces us deeply. You know our vengeful and hateful spirits. Lord, we come by them naturally in our fallen flesh. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to see ourselves as we really are. That you would reveal to us those ways that we have been vengeful, that we have been hateful. Lord, many of us have done it for so long, it is unseen to us, but it is not unfelt by those around us. Lord, humble us to our knees and the sight of the grace and the mercy of Jesus, the one who loves his enemies, the one who has died for us, his enemies, to make us your friends. And Lord, as you show us the grace and mercy of Christ, we pray that you would remake us in his image, that as you humble us to the dust, you would raise us up, that we would be eager to go forth, laying down our rights and lifting up our prayers. We ask that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.